This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning. Again, my name is Zach. If you're just joining us, we're continuing a sermon series that we are having in the book of John, the Gospel of John. And so far, we've looked at a number of signs uh, that John records Jesus as having done. Uh, And today, we're going to be looking at what we commonly call the feeding of the 5,000. But in it, we're also going to see Jesus test his disciples. Now, testing is an interesting word. I would imagine that for a majority of us, it causes some form of anxiety, brings us some form of concern. Uh, I've got tests that are coming up. I've got finals that are coming up, and we can kind of feel that tension coming in. My boss will be testing me. My wife is testing me. Uh, Many of these things create a sort of anxiety. But we also understand that some testing is very important. Bridges, for instance. Testing bridges is important. Testing the steel that is going to be used to construct your high-rise apartments, also very important. I would like them to test that steel. But... When the testing comes to testing our faith, I think we return closer to that first example, and maybe even a little bit beyond it. See, when Scripture says that our faith will be tested, in some ways I think it arises a greater anxiety in us. And the anxiety that it increases is because we understand that there are faults. We understand that maybe like the steel that wouldn't pass the test, that we may not pass the test. And so we're afraid that we may, just like the steel, be discarded. It's unusable. It is unworthy. So when Scripture uses the language of testing, it should rightly cause you a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of that tightening of chest. But we're also going to see in this passage today what it means for God to test us, what it looks like and what it feels like. And what we're going to see is that Testing looks like this. It looks like God asking questions, us answering those questions, and him providing. So God asking, us answering, and he providing. Those will be our three points. But before we get there, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. This is in reverence to the word of God. Again, John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not, be an, would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five, lo- five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to 
come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This ends the reading of God's word. God's word has gone out, and it will not return empty, but will accomplish the purposes that he set for it. May he do it for us today. Please be seated. So we're here looking and, and paying attention to God's testing. Uh, and we see it here, Jesus testing his disciples, Philip and Andrew. Um, and we said that our first point is going to be that God asks us a question. Now, I think we all want God to speak to us, right? I think we've all had those moments in our lives when we're like, God, just give me a sign. Just talk to me. But giving us a test or asking us questions might not be exactly what we were looking for. Um, there's a BBC radio show that will like interview actors, you know, so they like interview Robert Downey Jr. And he's the guy who plays Iron Man, uh, if you don't know him. So, that, you know, they're asking him questions. And then the interviewers, adults, you know, kind of are aware that there's certain questions that are kind of off limits because of like, you know, social uh, rules, right? There's like certain questions that you can't ask. So the, the way that they would like to get around this was they invite quest, uh, questions from kids to then ask them Ask the question, sorry, I'm a little distracted. It just, it got louder in here, right? I'm not crazy. I'm like, whoa. Okay. <clears throat> so they, they ask these kids uh, to produce these questions. They pre-record them, asking the questions, and then they give them uh, to the people being interviewed. And so these people being interviewed now have this uh, choice to face. Are they going to answer this question, whatever it may be, uh, or are they going to ignore children? There's not really a good option. So they, the interviewers see it as a great place to like, kind of put them on the spot. So like for Robert Downey Jr., you know, they're, they're asking questions. They're mostly like, do you pretend to be Iron Man at home? Do you have any of the toys at home and stuff like that? Um, they also interviewed Tom Holland, which is the guy who's playing the uh, current Spider-Man in the, in the current Spider-Man, uh, whatever, trilogy, movies. Um, so Tom Holland's there. He's getting questions again about Spider-Man, like when Spider-Man brushes his teeth, do webs get stuck in his teeth? Um, but then he's asked a question that he couldn't have anticipated because children, right? Uh, and a child named Obi asks him, what's your biggest regret in life? That's a question that you're not sure you want to receive like while on air. Tom Holland handled it graciously and actually answered that uh, his biggest regret was not continuing in ballet. At some point in his life for theater, he had taken a series of intensive ballet um, classes and was quite good at it, and then he didn't con continue it. So later in his career now, he doesn't have those skills and that he, he regrets that as one of his biggest regrets. But regardless to say, that was a very unexpected question. And unexpected questions are usually, or unanticipated questions are usually those ones that get us. They're the ones that cause us anxiety. If we kind of know, like, they're going to ask me questions about Spider-Man, you feel pretty comfortable. As soon as you get one of those curveballs, you're like, whoa, I like, didn't see that coming. Similarly, some of you know that I used to teach uh, in high school and middle school, so 8th through 11th graders. Inevitably, when tests were coming up, uh, they would beg and plead for a study guide. So now I would give them a study guide, but like any self-respecting teacher, I would also put questions on the test that were not on the study guide. Now, the students saw that as like the utmost injustice. So after the test, they would come back around and they'd be like, that question wasn't on the study guide. And I was like, yeah, because it's a test. We understand that the unanticipated questions are the ones that are the real tests. They're really testing our knowledge. Obviously, being tested by Jesus is anxiety-ridden because we don't know necessarily what the questions are going to be. 
And here we see that Jesus definitely asks unanticipated questions. See, the disciples are probably thinking about big questions in their mind, right? Like this crowd that's here, like it says 5,000 men, but it's probably more with women and children, right? So 5,000 men sat down on the grass. We're probably looking at at least 10,000 that have been following them. They're in the wilderness of some sort. They're not like in a city, right? He's going up on a mountain, and there's 10,000 people there. Maybe the disciples are thinking, could Jesus be in danger? Are these people all here for his praise? Or maybe alternatively, they're also thinking about themselves. And they're thinking like, man, all right, if this is what Jesus' ministry is like, like, and it's growing this quickly, I wonder when I'm going to get my 10,000. Maybe he'll send me off now. So they're sitting there. They're maybe expecting Jesus to ask some questions. But the question that Jesus asks is shocking. He turns to Philip, who's from the area, so it's, it's, it would be right to ask him, like, hey, Philip, where are we going to get food to feed these people? Now, you could imagine that situation going, I didn't invite them here. Why am I supposed to feed them? And also, have you ever tried to feed 10,000 people? Maybe some of you have. I never have. It would be an insurmountable task, not just something you just show up to one day, and you're like, hey, these people are here. Um, can we get some food for these people? Where are we going to get them? And John says in verse 6, he said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do, as Jesus knowing that he would do. The testing of Philip's faith, and we'll see Andrew's, came by a question that they didn't anticipate having to answer. And the testing of our faith comes by Jesus asking us questions that we didn't anticipate having to answer. You see, we get caught up in our own stories, our own <clears throat> self-promotion, our own ends and goals. Hold on one second. Won't mic that for you guys. That was special. Um, our own ends and goals. We get caught up in having to respond in our own responsibilities. But God doesn't expect you to shirk those responsibilities. He sees them, but he also wants you to back up a little bit and see a bigger picture. He wants you to see bigger than just the things that we tend to narrow on. We see too small of a picture. What kinds of unanticipated questions is God bringing into your life to get you to see a bigger picture? Maybe it can be as simple as this. You know, coworker, peer, or partner who keeps failing in the same way over and over and over and over again. And maybe your general response is because you don't have any authority over them or you're not subordinate to them. So your general response is just like a little bit of passive aggressiveness and kind of distancing yourself from them. Is God asking you to consider a different response? I'd venture to guess that for many of you, your life here on this island has raised all sorts of unanticipated questions. You have found yourself answering, struggling to answer questions that you didn't think you were going to have to answer. God might also be asking you a lot of other unanticipated questions that I can't think of. And if you don't feel that God is asking you a question, he's not asking you to evaluate something in your life, I'd encourage you to ask him. Now, it's a terrifying thing to ask for a test from the Lord, but I hope as we go forward, you will see that it is good to ask him. And the way that you ask him is actually praying, Lord, I pray that you would test my faith in opening his word and seeing where it doesn't line up. As you read through it, where do you fall short? Where's God asking you to evaluate? 
Where is God testing you? And actually, for all of us, even if we might know those areas where God is testing us, it would be good for us to go back to God's Word and verify that that's actually what God is saying and not just what we think God would say if He was testing us, because we do that a lot. Like little Pharisees, we like to create our own bounds of what we think God is asking us, and maybe He's asking us to see the picture a little bit differently. So the first part of our testing is to see that God asks a question. Now, I've already hinted at it a little, but it's time to move on to the second part, which is that we answer this question. Now, we're going to get a peek into like two different responses from Philip and Andrew. Uh, So Philip, in verse 7, responds with cynicism. 200 denarii wouldn't be enough to feed these people. A denarii is like a day's labor, maybe like, you know, three meals or whatever for a family. Um, It's it's kind of hard for us to equate it, but we're understanding what it's saying. Feeding 10,000 people right, is not something that's taken on lightly. Cynicism. I think we often respond to God's questions in Scripture, what God is doing in our lives, how God is testing our faith, and we exclaim to him, really? Now this? After all that I've been through, you're going to put this on my plate? A little bit of cynicism. Of course you would. Cynicism is an understandable response but it would be far from what we would consider pure faith. We might say that Philip's response was inadequate. Now, Andrew's response is also inadequate, but maybe it shows a little bit more faith, but it's probably closer to despair in verse 9. Andrew's response can be like, Lord, there's this boy here with five loaves and two fishes, but what is he for so many? And I think that for us, we like to follow this Eeyore of the New Testament. Okay, here's one more thing on my plate. Who knows if it'll ever get solved. We'll see. I'll pray about it, but I don't really expect anything to change. Now, these two responses to God's questions are examples of how not to respond in faith. But before we move on too quickly, before we dismiss them too quickly, I would really like for us to see that Philip and Andrew were able to say these things. I think sometimes in our walk with Jesus, in our discipleship by him, we're afraid to vent our natural responses and we gloss it over with some sort of holy apathy or something. Jesus didn't chastise them. Jesus didn't belittle them. And I think we often read that into the text when Jesus will say things, like in other parables, we'll say, oh, you of little faith. We read that as Jesus' chastisement. But the reality of it is, is that Jesus tested them because he knew that their faith would be weak. Because he knew what he himself would do. The reality of it is, is that Jesus knew exactly what their they were going to say. That's why he asked the question in the first place. He knew that their faith would be small and that their imaginations would be limited and focused on themselves and their own provision. Now, of course, in our Christian life, we should strive to have more and more faithful responses to Jesus's questions, to Jesus's tests of our faith. But if we're operating under the assumption that to pass the tests, we have to have 100% pure faith. You would be right 
in a sense. But we will never exhibit that. That's why we need Jesus. That takes us to our third point. We see that in our test of faith, we see that God asks us questions, that we have inadequate responses, cynicism or despair or a plethora of others. And finally, we're gonna see how he provides abundantly. When I said that our despair and cynicism keeps us focused inward, I say that it keeps our imaginations from dreaming big enough. And Jesus is about to show them how big their imaginations need to be and how big his kingdom is going to be. Now, have you ever tried to motivate people? Uh, one show that I think is fun to watch where people try to motivate other people is Shark Tank. Um, I have no idea if it, actually if it's still playing, but maybe you guys have seen it. You know, somebody walks into the room and they're trying to get investors to buy into their business plan. Now, the best part about Shark Tank, in my opinion, and maybe this shows you my own cynicism um, and hard-heartedness, is watching the people who have not prepared, have not thought through, or not, have not done the math, and just watching them get absolutely shredded by the investors that are like, this is not profitable, and you're out of your mind. However, for the point of what I'm doing, the ones that work, the ones that succeed, and the ones that really excite the investors are the ones where the investors can almost taste it. It like seems almost out of reach, but just there. It's an idea that they can get behind. Of course it has to be profitable. All the numbers have to be there. They're not going to go into something overly risky, right? But the vision has to be big enough. Jesus' vision for his kingdom is, frankly, to Philip and Andrew, unbelievable. Cynicism and despair. There's no way to feed 10,000 people at the drop of a hat. And Jesus says, watch this. As I've said, that number 5,000 uh, in verse 10 refers only to the men, so maybe we can safely assume that there's probably double that population there, okay? 10,000 people around. Jesus has five loaves and two fishes. Barley loaves are like one of the cheapest kinds of bread that you can buy in, in first century Palestine, and the fish is most certainly dried or salted. This isn't exactly a feast that we're talking about, right? And yet everyone, everyone ate their fill. And Jesus collected up what was not eaten, and there were 12 baskets full, almost as to say that all the disciples that had to go out and pick up the extras all came back with a basket full of abundance. Jesus provides so abundantly in order to drive home the point that their limited imaginations would not limit his kingdom. That his kingdom would be marked not only as one by abundant provision of food, but also by a people. And the kinds of people that would be in his kingdom are the people that can exhibit faith, pure faith. But Philip and Andrew weren't exactly the epitome of faithfulness. Was Jesus's demonstration of power just to demonstrate and exemplify for them what faithfulness looks like? After all, Jesus had to exercise faith that God was going to multiply the bread. Was it just like, this is the kind of faith that you're supposed to have, and then you could do these things? Or was Jesus going to be more than just a good example? The reality of it, the reality of it is, is that even if Jesus, if Jesus is only our good example, Jesus is only our good example, and even if we started living a faithful life today, 
we would have a past of unfaithfulness haunting us. We need not just more faith. We need a better faith. We need a pure faith. Hebrews will say that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the author of our faith. I think we often like to think that Jesus simply provides what we need for a faith that we authored. But Hebrews describes describes it as Jesus actually originating our faith. See, alongside what we said in our last point, that Jesus isn't surprised by our lack of faith, isn't surprised in the faults that he sees when it goes through the stress test. He's also the one who sees that our imaginations are stunted and that we need something better. We need something new. We need something recreated. We need new hearts. Jesus knew he was going to have to do something to change who we were, who we are, and who we will be. He died to himself so that we might have his life. He gives us his spirit. He provides his words. He gives us his sacraments to strengthen the faith that we were given in Christ. You see, the abundant provision of Jesus is not just the material food and drink. But it is a faith that when we look back, we can say, he passed the test, and I am hidden in him. Let's try this in an example. Uh, Remember that coworker I said that's failed again and again and again. You've said something passive-aggressive. That was kind of your initial response. Uh, Later at home, you know, the verse is brought to mind by the power of the Holy Spirit that you're supposed to forgive your brother 70 times, seven times. And now you're thinking to yourself, man, God is probably asking me to change direction here, to interact with this person a little bit different. Now, you could say, like, Jesus said those things and commanded me those things. Uh, And also, Jesus exhibited, he he exemplified for us a faith where he forgave people. You might be able to take Peter, for example, where Peter said, like, I'll never deny you. And then he denies him three times. And Jesus comes back after the resurrection. And he's like, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus forgave him in love. And so you might say, wow, that's a great example for me. I need to go forgive this brother in love. But the reality of it is you've still got this past now that haunts you. You've still got this past failure of faith. What are we going to do about it? Galatians 2.20 will say this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, we live in this weird dynamic where we're still fighting against who we once were. But Jesus' actions has fundamentally changed us into new creations. So that when God sees our past, he sees Christ's faithfulness. He sees Christ's forgiveness. And when that test comes through, he doesn't see your inadequate answers. He sees Christ's 
not only authoring your faith, but perfecting your faith. Testing from Jesus looks like him asking, us answering, and him providing his own faith, his own righteousness, and his own perfection. Now, there's one more interesting point here at the end of this passage. The crowd will say in verse 14, when they see the astonishment of this sign, that, and they'll, they'll exclaim, he is the prophet. If you go in there and you look, it'll say the prophet. But in verse 15, Jesus says that he perceived that they were going to make him king. Now, theologians will often use this phrase, office. Um, like, uh, and the comparison is like, we respect the office, right? Maybe not the person in the office, but we respect the office. So what offices does Christ fulfill? It's kind of this theological language that we use. But we use it to help us understand the work that Christ is doing. And the three offices that theologians generally talk about are prophet, king, and priest. Here in this passage, we have prophet and king in verses 14 and 15. Prophets were supposed to be the mouthpieces of God. They were supposed to declare to God's people in words and signs God's will for them. And in this story, as a prophet, Jesus has tested their faith, made clear God's will, and also provided for them in signs and wonders. Now, as a king, Jesus was supposed to rule over and subdue all of his enemies. And by his enemies, enemies, it's also the enemies of his people. So you see, this crowd saw that he was fulfilling this office of a prophet, and they said, we want him to subdue our enemies. But instead of Jesus allowing that to happen, Jesus withdraws. He goes away from the crowd. Because Jesus knows that the enemies of God's people are themselves. The sin and the problem that he came to fix in the world is in them. Their faith is weak. They need changing. You see, Jesus didn't assume the office of a king yet because Jesus had not yet fulfilled the office of a priest who was supposed to make intercession on behalf of God's people. He was supposed to reconcile God's people to God to make sure that there was no inhibitors between them and God. If he were to become king, he would have to execute his kingly functions, subdue his enemies, his own people. So Jesus withdrew not because he was disappointed in their fickle faith, in their failure to pass the test, but because they didn't understand that him becoming king would mean that he wouldn't have finished the work. He wouldn't have finished the work that would author and perfect their faith. That he hadn't done the work that would make absolutely sure that their faith would hold strong, that they would persevere unto the end. He hadn't done the work that would make sure all of their weaknesses would be covered. In fact, they'd be made new. Jesus, Jesus' testing of our faith isn't so that he can find out whether or not we will survive it on our own. We most certainly will not. Jesus tests our faith to show us just how much we need him. Just how much we need the author and perfecter of our faith that we would receive his robust and full faith, not our weak 
faith. It is his responses, faithful and sure, not our responses, cynical and despairing. It is not our providence of just a few loaves of bread and fishes, but his super abundant providence. His providence that's not just for our material needs, but also to make us new creations because Jesus Christ is indeed our prophet, priest, and king, indeed our savior. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and God, you have tested us and found us weak. You have tested us and found our responses have not been pure faith. But Lord Jesus, allow us to see how you provide abundantly for us. Allow us, by the power of your Spirit, to not only start imitating you, but allow us to rest in what you have done for us. Make us a people who run to you for our faith, who run to you when we have fallen, to run to you to feed us and to nourish us and to make us new creations. Allow us to rest in the fact that you author and perfect our faith. And we ask that you would perfect us day by day because of that great faith which you exercised. Amen.